Man, God is good. Uh, it's good to sing with him, to rejoice together, to be together. Um, but as we get started, we're gonna, we're gonna jump right back in where we've been, which is in the book of First Peter. And so I wanna invite you to turn there with me to First Peter. Uh, and we are in chapter two now. And so as we get started today, uh, would you stand with me as we do each week uh, to honor the reading of God's word together and follow along with me. First Peter Chapter two, uh, we'll start in verse four. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Well, as we've consistently pointed to in the book of First Peter, this theme that we're seeing is that there's hope for exiles like us, that we will be like God's people of old who are strangers uh, in a land, a home that is not our home, and yet our hope is in the Lord. And we've focused on the hope that is ours, the, the future inheritance that's coming, uh, the salvation that will be revealed soon, and the holiness that he's bringing about us in, in us along the way. But it would be very easy for us to think of our uh, identity as exiles like some sort of isolation chamber uh, or maybe like, like Tom Hanks uh, in, in Castaway, uh, that we're just alone, uh, left here, just us and Jesus in a foreign and hostile world. But this is not the sort of exile that God is pointing us toward. Our exile is a communal one. Uh, for the first time, Peter's gonna talk to us here and turn his attention not merely to the blessings uh, that are mine in Christ, but to the community that is ours uh, while we are here. And so today we're gonna look at the church. And I think we're gonna see a few things. Um, and here, here they are, the exile community, that the church is number one, bigger than any one of us. Number two, the church is built on Jesus. Number three, the church is more important than we realize. And fourth, the church proclaims the light. So let me, let me pray for us. Father, would you lead us this morning? Would we see your covenant people? God, would we see those around us? Would we see the church that you have called us to be? Would, would, would this be our vision because it is what you have given us, the gift, the means of your grace to us. So God, would you help us? Would you help us to this morning where we are distracted, where we are tired, 
um, would, you, would you make our hearts alert? Would you help our minds to be uh, ready to receive what you would show us from your word? And we ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you left to come here this morning, there's no doubt uh, that likely you or someone with you said, or maybe just thought in your mind, I'm going to church, right? It's time to go to church. Uh, and there's no doubt that we are indeed a church. Um, and you may have even been one of the ones uh, in the last uh, several weeks who has asked, how's construction going on the new church? And since no one likes the grammar police um, and even less the theology police, um, it's never nice to answer a question like that with, well, the building is coming along great. I can't wait for the church to meet in the building um, because no one likes a smart answer like that. Um, but I think for most of us, we understand what we mean when we say uh, we're going to church. We, we mean we're going to meet with God's people. And I hope this isn't a new idea um, for you, uh, that the, the word church, the, the ecclesia, the called out ones, is not a building, not a location, it's a people. Like we learned children's songs about this, right? With the hands and the people and inside of the people. Um, the, if you're around long at all here, you will hear us refer to the, to the church in many ways, like a community, um, as a family, as brothers and sisters in the faith. And these, these, are, these ideas are biblical. Um, we're not making them up. <laughs> Um, in fact, it's the, but it's, it's the expectation of scripture that a person whose heart has been made new, whose sins have been forgiven, who's seeking to walk as a follower of Jesus, that this person will be living in community. Uh, this is not optional for us. And if we're going to pursue this sort of community, this sort of church life, we need to know what it is. And I think this is one of the best passages uh, that there is about the nature of the church. And so let's dive right in. Number one, uh, the church is bigger than any one of us. The imagery here is fantastic. Uh, Peter is, is gonna mention several things that we are a, a people, a nation, a race. But the main picture he's, he's painting here is, is, is actually an unusual one. Uh, that not only are we members of God's family, Peter's saying we're stones in God's house. So we're moving from last week as, as uh, Lawson ended uh, the last passage, we were talking about nursing babies. That was the metaphor. Um, so, if, if, so men, if, if, if you can't really get into the, like, the nursing baby metaphor, this one's a construction metaphor. So this is like, we got full Tim the Tool Man grunting going as we, as we jump in. Uh, but here, here, here's what Paul, Peter's saying in, in verse five. You yourselves as living stones a spiritual house, there's good manly stuff here happening, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So to understand this, I think we have to, we have to think about the buildings uh, of the Old Testament. Peter says we are a spiritual house. So what, what is he talking about? God's people knew of only one sort of spiritual house uh, in the Old Testament, it was where God's presence uh, would dwell with the people. So when they wandered in the wilderness with Moses, it, it came in the form of a tent, uh, the tabernacle. And there in the tent was the Ark of the Covenant. And God's presence physically dwelled or tabernacled with them. 
but it was too great, too glorious for them to even to draw near. And so there were priests who were set apart to help with worship and experiencing uh, the forgiveness of God, to offer sacrifices. And when God's people would relocate, uh, they had to be very careful, right? They had to, they had to move the tabernacle, but, but, but if, you, if you didn't do it properly, because God's presence was so real, you might die. Um, and so as people would go about their day in, uh, whenever they were in the wilderness, uh, they would step out of their tent, their personal tents, and they would look to the tabernacle, to God's tent. And what did they see there? That the presence of God was with them. That if, if they doubted him, when they were discouraged, when they forgot his power, look to the tent. Look to the tabernacle. See the cloud of God's glory there. He's, he's with us. He's dwelling with us. And the same thing happened later as, as King Solomon uh, built the temple, a more permanent version of the tabernacle, a more permanent home for God's presence. And again, with priests serving, sacrificing, the temple became this constant, more permanent sign of God's power, his presence with his people. And then fast forward to the gospel of John. And John, one of the apostles of Jesus, what does he write when Jesus comes on the scene? In verse 14 of, his, of the first chapter of John, he says, the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. And as they walked with him, what, what, did, what did God's people get to do? Here's what they got to do. It says right there in John 1, we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It's incredible. Jesus, the true temple, the true glory of God, he was with them. And many people missed it. But the presence of God was there in flesh and blood. So if they doubted God, if they were discouraged, when they forgot God's power and his provision, they looked to the face of Jesus. They said, he, he's here, he's with us. God has made his dwelling with us. And we fast forward to the very end of the scriptures. And we see this heavenly city in Revelation. We just read this just a, a week or two ago uh, at the end of Revelation. What does John write about that heavenly city? In Revelation 21, verse 22, here's what he says. I did not see a temple in the heavenly city because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. No more doubting. No more forgetting his power. His presence with us forever, eternally. And so now let's come back to the here and now. Peter is saying something very astounding about right now. So God's presence is no longer found in the temple or in the tabernacle. Jesus, who was here and tabernacled among us, he has ascended to the Father. And though we have not seen him, Peter said, we love him. And yes, the Bible tells us now the spirit dwells in us. But even now, Peter's saying there is still a spiritual house where God's presence is known. There is a new temple, a new spiritual dwelling. And it's more than a house. It's more than what we're building over on Baker Drive. You don't get this kind of house by putting out some bricks and mortar. 
stacking them to form walls. You want to know the spirit of God, the presence of God? You look to Christ's church. Tim Keller says the church is not the place where you lay brick upon brick. It's the place where you stack Christian upon Christian. So today, Christian, you aren't building something for God. You are being built. Peter's saying you're being built into a spiritual house. And what's inside a house? A household. And so this isn't about church membership. This isn't about uh, attendance on Sundays, though these things are important. They're part of it. But it's about this. God, the master builder, did not design you to be alone. And so if you say you love Jesus, but you refuse to live in Christian community, it's like the ultimate in self-sabotage. Charles Spurgeon said this, this is a, a, a great quote from Spurgeon. He said, I know there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I don't intend to give myself to any church. I say, now why not? And they answer, because I can be just as good a Christian without it. I say, are you quite clear about that? What is the brick made for? It's made to build a house. It is of no use for the brick to tell you that it's just as good a brick while it's kicking about on the ground by itself as it would be as part of a house. So the church of God is the new spiritual house. So, so, now, so now, today, this morning, do you, do you doubt the presence of God in your life? Are there days when you, when you wonder whether he cares, whether he's with you in your pain, whether he'll meet your needs? We don't, we don't now look to the tent, to the tabernacle. Peter's saying, as you come to Jesus, so we look to him, now you see the glory of God as you look at the faces of your brothers and your sisters, as you look to those in the church, the chosen, blood-bought children of God. And when you do, you remember, ah, he's with me. He's with me in the lives of his saints. He's, he's with us by the power of his spirit. He's still dwelling with us. We're not alone. You're not alone. You're part of the church, part of his house. With each brick belonging to the others. And as you are being built together, we're all belonging to God. I, I think in this COVID age, uh, it may have become very easy for us to live in isolation. And so I just want to implore you, no one wants you to get sick. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want any of us to get COVID. But there is a spiritual sickness that isolation from other believers will bring. And so how, how, can, we, how can we push against isolation? How can, we, how can we make gathering with the saints a priority? How will you seek, even if it makes you uncomfortable, even if you have to wear a mask, how will you seek to worship God's people and to take the Lord's Supper together to experience the flesh and blood blessing of being with God's people? 
We, we, we need this. We need each other. The church is bigger than any one of us. So number two, the church is built on Jesus. So not only is the church, or just Jesus building the church, but he, he's also the foundation. Look back at verse four. I, I love how Peter introduces this metaphor. Uh, before he calls us living stones, he says this. He says, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. I, I love this, that, that Peter, the one who Jesus called the rock, he's saying, my name may mean rock, but Jesus is the living rock. I'm not the source. I'm not the foundation. He is. The church is built on Jesus, through Jesus. And then for the next three verses, he's just gonna, Peter's gonna go on a little riff here, uh, just stringing verses together from the Old Testament, showing us that Jesus is the stone. Verse six, he says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. This is, this is straight out of Isaiah 28. Isaiah was talking about people who, who were, who, they feel like they've, they've made a deal with death. They've, they've, uh, they've got a refuge that they've struck a deal. They've got a refuge against death. And God is saying, look, there's only one refuge. I laid a stone out there. And that stone, that's gonna be your refuge from death. You trust that refuge and you're good. When the storm comes, you have refuge. But if you reject the stone, death is coming. And this is what Peter is saying about Jesus. And Peter goes on, he says, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. That's straight from Psalm 118. And a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over from Isaiah 8. These are just, he's stringing these passages together. I, I love how... This, this word, okay, so in our, in our kind of architectural age, um, our days of architects and CAD drawings, uh, we don't hear a lot about cornerstones, right? Um, in fact, in all of our building meetings with Paradigm, our contractor, never once have they told me anything about where the cornerstone's gonna go. And I'm, it's a little concerning that we're this far into the process and we don't have our cornerstone down yet. Um, no, but in fact, if you see a cornerstone now, um, it's either number one, it's the name of an architectural firm, <laughs> Or number two, it's, it's a decoration. It's, it's, a, it's, a, sim, it's a symbol of, of something that's true, um, but it's, it's something that's being shown uh, to, uh, rep, referencing back to uh, a deeper truth. But in ancient buildings, the cornerstone, it, it was hugely important. It was not symbolic. This was the first stone that went in place when a building was begun. And this stone would determine whether the entire building was gonna be built correctly. Would the bricks be level? Would the walls be straight? Everything was to be an extension of the cornerstone. It had to be square, it had to be level, or the building would end up pretty much like anything I draw, which is not good. Uh, and, and Peter is, is making this connection. He's saying the Lord is building a spiritual building and he's chosen us as part of the stones. He's, he's, he's called us. We are his, but there is only one cornerstone and it's Jesus and everything proceeds from him. There's no building apart from him. There's no fellowship for you apart from him. Think, think about your friends, those people here at Redeemer with whom he's built your life together. How would you even know one another apart from Jesus? What fellowship would you have 
Uh, last, uh, recently, at, when we, we missed, some of you were probably here for uh, John Perkle's memorial service. And there was this great uh, moment in the service where uh, Jason Ray, who's a longtime friend of John's, he got up and uh, shared some things about John. And Jason, Jason had been part of Redeemer at the, the early days and they moved um, up to the Dallas area a number of years ago. And Jason told all these great stories about John. Um, and and they, were, they were friends, very unlikely friends. They hunted together they, and, and they would spend hours working together. Um, and Jason would tell, would told, he told a great story about they were spending time working together, spending, spending full days out working, preparing this lease, working on it together. Um, and, and John, at the end of one of these days, uh, or as the day's closing and getting close to the end, he, he's apologizing because he's had to take a couple of breaks along the way. Um, he's like, man, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm having to take breaks here and there. And he, and John, and and Jason said something along the lines of, well, you know, John, it's okay. I'm younger than you are. Uh, and John goes, well, you know, just because you're five years younger than me uh, doesn't, doesn't matter. And Jason goes, John, I'm 20 years younger than you. <laughs> John had no clue. And no, no idea of the age difference, either that or he was just making a joke, which is possible too. Uh, but that was the sort of unlikely connection that God brought together as they were built together as part of the spiritual house of God. Unlikely friends separated by 20 years and yet fellowship, friendship formed through a small group and their lives built together as part of God's, God's house. And the father sets the son, the living stone in place and he builds his house. And all of church history, all of fellowship, all the way back to Christ himself, the community of his people throughout the ages, it's all proceeding from him all being stacked on the cornerstone. Even here, that's how his fellowship is built. Look at verse seven, he says, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. The stone that was rejected. Many, many rejected him. Many pass over Jesus. Many build with different stones. But a house built on anything else is, is faulty, it's crooked. It will not last. The rulers of the law, we, we saw them as Jesus was ministering. The high priests, the Pharisees, they, they rejected Jesus. Even today, many, many believe a different gospel, the gospel of self-determinism, the gospel of rationalism. They build their foundation on the gospel of power or comfort. Many rejecting him still. Why? Because they're building a different house a house of their own works, a house of self-righteousness. But there is only one foundation. And Jesus, he's either your foundation, the one that your life, your fellowship, our church is built upon, or he is the stone you reject. And whatever is built from, apart from him will fail. And so the church is each of us built together and built on Christ. And so even knowing all that, I, th I think number three, the church is still more important than we realize. So I, I think we feel all this, the, the need that we have for one another. God said uh, to Adam, right? He said, it's not good for a man to be alone. And I think we believe that. We know the church is important. And as the gospel works in us, I do think we know that's what we need. We, need, we do need people. 
But Peter's gonna say some amazing phrases here about the church that I, I think would have offended some of his original hearers and probably some of us as well. Listen to what Peter says about the church. In verse nine, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. And, and this language, this is crazy language. It, it's, it's just like when he's calling us exiles, Peter is ascribing to us, the church, words that had been ascribed to God's people in the Old Testament. And Peter's not, he's not, he's not even pausing. He's just, he's, he's rolling these out there about the church. And this isn't to say that Peter is uh, saying that all the Old Testament people of God, Israel, that they're not important, that they're no longer, that, that they're meaningless. But he's saying, we've been brought in. We are the new covenant people of God. And listen to what he calls us. I'm gonna hit these quickly. You are a chosen race. So remember, Peter's writing from Rome here. So Rome is this, at the height of its power, Rome is this multi-ethnic, huge place with so many people, uh, this empire. And for many, their ethnicity within Rome was what identified them. It's what gave them community. what gave them a sense of belonging. And this is something we don't choose, right? You don't you choose your ethnic makeup. You're born with it. This is your, your family lineage. And Peter's saying that sense of belonging, that, that togetherness that you feel with those in your family line, it's yours in Christ. Christian unity is more than that. It's more than club membership. It's more than common sports team fandom. It's better than DNA. It's better than bloodlines. Ed Clowney, the commentator, says, says this. He says, there is spiritual ethnicity to the church of Christ. Christians are blood relatives joined by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Peter is, is writing to this ethnic hodgepodge. And, and, and within, that, within that audience, there are many who are overlooked, even oppressed. Many racial minorities and outcasts. There are men and women from many different socioeconomic backgrounds, different social strata, some slaves, some free, some noble, some poor. And he's saying the gospel is, is removing these lines. Whatever your station, whatever your ethnic distinction or disadvantage, all is subsumed under the banner of Jesus. Whatever identity you held onto as primary, is no longer primary. Whatever racial hate or pride that existed for you now vanquished. Whatever socioeconomic division that existed now erased. Now, does this mean our, our bloodlines, our, our, our families, our, our racial distinctions evaporate on, on this earth? Absolutely not. In fact, in heaven, we're seeing a many multifaceted, multi-nation, uh, every tribe, nation, and tongue praising the Lord. So by no means are they gone. Is racism still a problem today? Sure, absolutely. Should the church be leading the charge against this sort of oppression and hatred? Yes. But we cannot forget we have a new blood, a new family line. And this is the guiding force that we might love one another well. That we might love each other despite 
20 year age differences that we didn't know exist despite different bloodlines and lineage that we might love well because we have new DNA. Also, you're a royal priesthood. What does this, what does this one mean? So look, look back at verse five. We're being built into a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Israel had a group of those set apart as priests making sacrifices, serving as the go-between, between people and God. But if we're now all priests, in fact, the Bible calls us a kingdom of priests, I don't think this means that we're gonna be all sacrificing goats together uh, over at the new building. Uh, if you want to do that, you should probably talk to the elders. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, in fact, you know what? We don't need to. Because there has been a sacrifice for us. Jesus, the sacrificial lamb of God. So how now are we all then priests together? Consider Romans 12. When Paul says, in view of God's mercy... I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So our sacrifice now, under the banner of the sacrificial lamb of God, it is no animal at all. It's us. It's our very selves. What does the church have to offer that might be acceptable before God? We offer everything. It's all his, all of us for him. And so what role then do we play as priests? It's me helping you to present your life before Christ in worship. It's you helping me to give all of myself to Jesus. Every week when you gather here, when we take the Lord's Supper together, when you listen and sing of the grace of Jesus, when you meet in homes to spur one another on, we're serving one another as priests. So that in increasing measure, each tiny aspect of our lives might be lived through and for Jesus, might be laid down on the altar of worship. So how does my life have meaning now as it's laid down to worship Jesus? How do you remember that your life as an accountant, a salesman, a homemaker, a student, a teacher, a parent, how do you see each moment of your life as an offering of worship? This is the priestly function of the community of God, helping one another to kill sin, to treasure Christ, and to serve him fully. When my flesh grows weary, you hold up my arms. You pray for me that I might be faithful in discipling my children. When you forget who you are in Christ, your brothers and sisters are here to remind you that, that you're the beloved of God, chosen and precious to him. These are the sort of beautiful priestly sacrifices that are happening every week throughout Tomball in different homes throughout our church family as we exhort one another, as we weep and rejoice with each other that our lives might be built into a beautiful house of God's presence with us. This is the priesthood of all believers that we are all called as ministers. It's not just the pastors. It's not just paid staff. It is all of us. And so like the bulls and the goats that the priests laid on the altar, we are helping one another to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel in worship of Jesus. All acceptable because of his sacrifice. And lastly, 
He calls us a holy nation. I can't recall a time in my life, um, maybe you can in yours, um, but I can't recall a time where the social and political discourse in our country has been more discouraging and more toxic than it is right now. Um, In fact, next week, in our passage next week, we're gonna dig a little further into that as our role as citizens, as, as a redemptive force, as a light um, in our nation. How do we, how do we be, how, do, how are we good citizens? Well, but if you trace your finger along the course of history, this is not unique. Violent empires, corrupt kings and governments, atrocities of injustice and genocide, the killing of the innocent, And in the middle of all this chaos, yes, even now in 2020 in America, you, the church, you're a holy nation. The church of Jesus Christ is now a scattered embassy in hostile territory. A community where our unity is not in race, not in a language or a set of customs, but where every skin color, every nation, every tribe, where all who call on the name of the Lord are united. The church is the true and better uh, United Nations. All under the true King of Kings. Where our platform is not a red donkey, our platform is not a blue elephant, it's the blood-stained lamb of God who takes our sin. Christian, this isn't just a future hope. This is a present reality. I, I love America. But America is not the holy nation that Peter's talking about. You are a holy nation. The church is the holy nation. And as we remember this, suddenly our anxious trepidation, our trepidation over elections, over our our ultimate hope in, in, in parties or platforms, these begin to dissipate in view of our true nationality, our forever king, Christian, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. So lastly, what will happen when we actually live as the spiritual house of God, as a countercultural community in the world? Number four, the church proclaims the light. Look at that second part of verse nine. He says, so that you may proclaim the praise of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Is there any greater description of the church's purpose in all of scripture? This is so great. So just as Israel was called to be a light among the nations, now we are called to the task. The church proclaims how truly excellent the Lord is. And how are we gonna do this? Through praise. The biblical idea of praise is not, it is speaking and rejoicing about what God has done. That's what it is. But it's also loaded with the idea uh, that it's not fully complete until it happens in front of others. A, f- a funny habit that I have is, is that maybe some of you have this habit. I, I throughout the course of weeks or days, I, I'll collect whatever like funny videos or, or great, a great new song that I found or whatever. And I just begin to bookmark them, right? And I, some of my, sometimes I'll text them to myself or I'll save them on my computer or whatever. And then some, some evening at a random moment, I'll think of one of those things. And, and then the next 30 minutes will be me showing my wife all of the things that I've saved up. I've got this saved up collection. Here's this great YouTube video. Here's this great song. Uh, here's this funny thing. Uh, and she obliges. And so, and so what happens? I sit and I listen and I watch with her. And what do I do? I get to laugh again 
I get to be moved again by whatever it is and I get to watch her. I get to watch her laugh and her, watch her cry because she cries anytime, anytime things, anything's moving. And it's, what is it? It's praise. You, you do the same thing. Anytime you see an incredible sunset, what do you do? Like you want to tell somebody, right? You, like you're texting, you're taking a picture now, right? And texting it to somebody. You're calling your friend. Hey, can you see this? Uh, you're posting it on Facebook and saying, hey, everybody, look at the, look at the sky. Uh, when you hear a great sermon or you, hear, or you read a great book, what do you do? You, you pass it along. You want others to enjoy it. Praise isn't an alone activity. We're proclaiming the praiseworthy aspects and works of God amongst others. And we can, we can really get evangelism, I think, messed up in our own minds and go, yeah, I need a strategy. I need to take a class. I need a degree in apologetics. Um, I really need to know the scriptures better than I do. Um, and those things are all good. But let me tell you something even better. Once, Peter says in verse 10, once you were not a people, you were isolated, you were alone, you had no lasting family. But, but now, now you're God's people. God received you, he brought you in. He gave you a new name, a new birth. Look, look around, look in here. He gave you a people. You're a part of the family of God. So are you wondering what to tell your lost friend? Tell them that. Do you need more to share? Here's some more. Peter says you'd received mercy. That's what, that's what you got. And once you, once you were negotiating with death, you were trying to balance out the scales of your life, trying to think, man, if I could just do a little more good than bad, there was no mercy in that. Oh, but now, he says, now you've received mercy. You you deserved destruction, but he gave you life. When you deserved shame, there was forgiveness. It was mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace. You wanna share the gospel with people? What better script is there? Tell them what Jesus did for you. Who in your life needs to hear of God's excellencies. Who needs to know that you were once in darkness, but now you're in God's marvelous light, that you were dead, but now alive? Do you have friends like that? Friends in darkness? I know you do. And many of them don't even know they're in it. They've gotten so used to it, but you know they're alone. You know they have no spiritual home, no true refuge. If you're alive, if you're a living stone, proclaim the praises of God to them, to anyone who will hear. This is what we mean when we say we want to make much of Jesus. So as we close, I wanna ask you, are you pursuing this sort of life in the church? This idea of fellowship and community, it can be very idealistic. It can be kind of overwhelming. You hear a sermon like this and maybe you're motivated. Maybe you go, man, I'm, I'm gonna get in a small group. I'm gonna re-engage with my small group. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get back to my missional community. Um, and so you go to the first group and you're in, like fellowship, confessing sin, caring for each other, I'm in. And then two hours later, you walk out and you're like, I don't know, I don't know, not with those people. These people aren't quite like me. We don't have all the same shared interests. It was a little awkward at times. We don't share all the same political views. 
These people have problems, really. Or maybe it's just, eh, I don't know. Tuesdays are not a good night. And so what, is, what we know is so important becomes so easy to forsake. Maybe you've allowed social distancing or concerns to keep you from God's people. I just say participation in the community and the mission of God is not always gonna be comfortable. It takes commitment. It's a discipline. It's like any other discipline. It's something that we know is so good, but sometimes it takes planning for. It takes working toward. Have you ever prayed for it? Have you ever asked God, God, would you show me how to live in community? Would you, would you lead me? Would you lead my family so that we might walk with others? That we might bear one another's burdens, that they might bear mine, I might bear theirs. Ask God for it and then fight for it. And so church, as we come to Jesus, may we be built into a spiritual house where the presence of God will be felt and where we will live and serve as his priests, his people, so that many might join us in praising him. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we praise your goodness that you've called us from darkness to light. That you've made dead hearts alive. Father, we can't help but rejoice in that. And so with that reality, with that identity as those who are your alive chosen ones, would, you, would that drive us to your people? And that we might be built together, that we might walk together, that we might confess together and rejoice together. God, would you build your church, not on us, but would you build it on your son? Father, would you make your church strong that we might proclaim your glory, your excellencies to the world. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.